and we are live. Good to see you today, my EOS podcast friends, my EOS writer podcast friends, everyone involved here. Also, uh, if you hear this smooth sound coming through your ears these days, it's because Scott, we have a sound engineer who's part of the team with EOS podcast team here, and uh, Scott's been doing awesome stuff with the sound, and he also is a developer. Check out hybrid.games, which is Scott's project, his uh, it's pretty epic, actually, if you go check it out, hybrid.games. So anywhere, there's a quick plug, EOS podcast. We have David Packham, the one and only, the legendary man himself from Shintai, EOS 42, um, the guardian of the blockchain, one of the guardians of the blockchain here. So uh, David, welcome to the show. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, Brandon. Thanks for having me again. It's been been about a year, I think, since uh, you and I lost uh, on the podcast together, and uh, it's been a hell of a year. As yeah. we come up to the, the one year anniversary. So yeah, I'm the, the co-founder of EOS 42, uh, one of the um, block producers or currently just outside the, the producer zone. And also uh, we founded a project um, called Shintai, which is uh, a token leasing platform and is expanding now out into non-EOS related tokens and non-fungible tokens in the gaming sector. So um, we've got some exciting things going on from, from the project on that side of things. Um, and yeah, everything's just been a, phenomenal first uh, 11 months really I, I i couldn't really be happier about how well things have gone for for us on a personal level and i think for the the look at the progress the community have collectively made it's been been huge and so i think we should uh, definitely take this opportunity on the one year anniversary to to give ourselves a little bit of a pat on the back about how well we've done because if you look at other projects in that time i don't think anybody's done as much collectively yeah, I mean, it's been going absolutely insane. I've, we're getting close to 100 shows on the EOS podcast now. Uh, it's been about 14 months. I started a couple, maybe 15 months, a few months before mainnet. But um, but yeah, and every show I've just been kind of had my jaw, jaw dropping like, my God, people are building so fast. So um, yeah, big pat on the back to, to everyone uh, who's been working on this. Shintai is really interesting. I'm excited to get into that because, um, you know, just since that de has developed, there's been a lot going on there. The checks token sales going on right now, or excuse me, auction, um, and, uh, a lot going on there. So we're going to get in kind of the dynamics of that, but let's talk about a little bit of general EOS first. What, what do you think is the most interesting thing going on in EOS, uh, or EOS IO right now is, uh, well, I'll tell you what, I think the one probably on, on most, uh, viewers mind right now is uh block one unstaking 9.8 million tokens today yeah so that's bound to that's bound to be the moment for them i thought they did a very good job of of uh, i think dan made a statement just saying look don't worry guys we're not selling the eos or anything like that so <laughs> yeah. uh it, it kind of reminds me of Novogratz coming out to explain why they they made that disposal on some block one shares on their side because everyone starts jumping to conclusions and thinking oh what does it mean this or that uh, so, so yeah, I think it's, uh, that's probably the big one right now. What do you think it means? Uh, I'm hoping, well, I'm hoping that it has something to do with URI. Uh, you know, we've had these hints from Dan saying that the best form of adoption you could possibly have, or the best marketing you could possibly have for EOS would be some sort of universal resource inheritance, some sort of uh, social media site where people are getting basically paid to use it. I think that would be exciting just because, it would throw such a giant wild card out there. Like, um, you know, if the June, if the June 1st event was something around that, um, it, that would just be exciting and fun because of the possibility of adoption. Um, yeah. so, certainly would. I mean, it's, uh, 
what is it? It's uh, it's about sixty sixty million dollars worth of uh, tokens there. So it all depends what what they plan to do with it. I mean, you're right. So in theory, it could be a range of things. They they were very non-specific about about the um, about it. But certainly, one thing I think most people would hope is that they, as the biggest stakeholder in the network right now, would uh, would hopefully start to take take some um, action. I think in terms of uh, maybe some participation in the voting as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that'd be that'd be interesting. They still have a, they still pull a lot of weight uh, as far as voting. I mean, they they could definitely kind of reorganize the the structure a little bit as far as maybe some of the block producers that are doing a lot that have fallen out of the top thirty, um, or that have you know been lingering on the top thirty. EOS forty two recently out of the top thirty, um, and there's some teams like Cypherglass, which is some of my you know some of these teams that are doing a lot of things that have. Uh, you know, falling down the ranks a little bit. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Wonder, you know, there's an interesting one. I, I, I've listened to some really good commentary over the last, um, for the last couple of weeks on this, because there's some quite widely varying views about this. Is You know, one school of thought says this is a, this is terrible. These are, are really good teams and, you know, they should be in the top 21 for some reason or, you know, as a producer. Uh, and, you know, others are, uh, are more pragmatic about this and they're, they're giving some really good, uh, alternative perspective on this, you know, for example, these are these are stakeholders in the network who own the tokens who are, are choosing to come in and start voting for the first time, and, and they're making decisions um, based on their best judgment of what's in their own best interest. So not always necessarily it's going to be aligned with the the network fully, um, but again, then it, it all feeds back into this whole idea of you know in a in an ecosystem of multiple EOSIO chains. That's going to be a healthy moment, I think, when, when we get that because uh, the, the, the competition between the networks should increase over time. And, uh, and that will, will, I think, feed into token holder behavior, including things like uh, voting like this as well and, and how they vote and who are the, the custodians that they elect to, to uh, make those decisions on the network on their behalf as, as block producers and so on. But uh, it, it's certainly interesting seeing the community have a big debate about this. And, you know, certainly a lot of people, I think, have got some some open voicing of concerns around it right now. Mm-hmm. Where, so do you, do you know where the extra voting power came from or where the, you know, where the shift in the network came from? Uh, I mean, the best, best, um, best theory, I suppose, um, that, that I've heard, the one that makes the most sense actually is that it was the, um, it was the conversion event opportunity that took place during um, EOS's dropped way down to $1.50. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. In about, was it January, February? And and if you actually look at the charts, it wasn't so much the price of that that made um, it a good conversion opportunity event in dollars. It was the fact that it re- went relatively incredibly cheap versus Bitcoin and Ethereum at that moment. So um, at that moment, I think there's an op- there was potential for a lot of big crypto holders who missed the boat in the ICO to say this is our moment to jump and get you know diversify out somewhat of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum, for example, and take a meaningful stake in that. And particularly if they were, uh, for example, mining teams and so on and so forth, they may have seen that as their moment to to buy some stake in, to to start getting involved in the the community and the ecosystem. So it, it could well be that that's what we're now seeing feeding through as a result of that. Uh, it, it's that's certainly one theory I've heard, and it certainly makes sense. I don't for one minute buy that it's anything really to do with the, um, the introduction of the EUA uh, because although that didn't um, outlaw certain practices relating to vote trading and other things like that, 
that kind of thing was was really going on anyway before uh, before that anyway, and that was one of the criticisms of putting in a rule that wasn't entirely enforceable anyway. So I, I don't think that's certainly the other one, and and I also don't think that the introduction of the Rex in itself has has made any differences there either. That's brought in some additional um, voters as well, but really from the way we're looking at the way that the the Rex proxies um, behaving, I, I don't think that that's led to these changes. So it, it seems to be the best theory. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't, it doesn't seem like the, the Rex has had some big sweeping change. Um, and that makes sense. That's kind of the free market at work right there with, with a drop in price. Some people, you know, that, that makes a ton of sense. Some people finally uh, getting the chance again to diversify into EOS. And also, that's a great opportunity because of the fact they got to watch it for almost a year and kind of vet the vet what's going on, and then kind of uh, get in. That that makes sense, actually. The, the Rex itself was quite a valuable um, uh, addition to the network, but I think its its impact will be properly felt from an economic point of view out in the future. Because what it's done is is it's provided a single huge uh, liquidity pool that the businesses will be able to draw on uh, whenever they need, ongoing in the future. So it's going to, it's really now provides a means for businesses to not even need to hold um, EOS ongoing themselves anymore. They can just lease super cheaply uh, with a high degree of um, certainty relating to those prices staying super low. So in other words, it's, it's going to make it very, very cheap for people to do business on EOS long term, which is really what you need when you're, you're building a commercial chain. You don't want that you know, uh, risk of price fluctuations causing those problems. So, um, and it, it, it's really been interesting because it did what I expected by putting the fees into the, the Rex as well. It gave uh, an effective artificial floor into the, um, the, the supply pool, which meant that people had no choice but to move all their tokens that were maybe being uh, leased out on Chentai across onto the Rex because you can get a superior return. But um, it hasn't actually increased CPU usage, if you actually look. There's a, there's a huge amount of liquidity in the pool most of it's not really being utilized for CPU leasing at this stage, but that's good. It shows the capacity and effect of the network that we have just sitting there ready to be used when it's required. And for Shintai, that's kind of fine because we've long um, been looking beyond just EOS CPU uh, leasing anyway. So it kind of validated the fact that, yes, we were, we're, we're making the right decision for, for the application to, to look bigger and look beyond this. And, uh, you know, we have the DAP network from Liquid Apps which is a big one that's um, going to completely change the way that I think a lot of resourcing works. And we've got that coming. And, uh, and with that, that means uh, DAP leasing will be coming. And then there's a range of other projects too um, that we're going to be supporting. Pixios is the, a recent one that's just been announced. And, uh, and the focus then for us and then moves on to the NFT space as well. But we can maybe come on to all that a little later on. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's such. I was looking at your, your roadmap for, uh, for Shintai, and it, it's, it is definitely, it's cool how it goes away from just the EOS main chain. It goes down the road into the, the side chains, all of EOS IO, and then outside of uh, EOS it or EOS IO completely. So um, it, there's, there's a big opportunity there, which is, which is cool for the whole space. Um, and, and when you mentioned just going back a little bit, cause I had this thought of when you mentioned people kind of getting into EOS at the lower price, I was just picturing like kind of this game of Thrones type of uh, you know, there's all this maneuver okay. going on, which is so just interesting within the EOS blockchain or the EOS IO and all of crypto and this, like this constant maneuvering, you never really know, uh, what's going to come out on top. And so um, 
the diversifying of the chain with the sister chains is, is such a, uh, it's kind of like this safety valve for us. We don't really need to know what's going to happen or who's going to win as long as uh, the competition stays, you know. So, so yeah, I agree, I agree with you on that. So, so what people um, need to understand about the, the design of EOS IO itself is, of course, that it, it was in, it's designed to be multiple chains interconnected mm-hmm. as part of its scaling. So, uh, therefore, um, you, you can actually look at any one chain as becoming increasingly less and less important in the, in the context of the whole. Not to say its value won't continue to increase as the whole network's value does, but the network will cease to be one chain. It will be multiple chains. And that's great because it gives people with different philosophies on how they wish to uh, interact with one another, um, how they wish to govern a network together and so on to form communities that don't necessarily need to be um, as diverse as a global community in the much the same way as, you know, San Francisco, for example, and London have different cultures, uh, different practices. They have a lot in common. They trade a lot with each other in a variety of different ways, but they're actually self-contained um, in one sense as well. And, and I do think in many ways those individual uh, chains are going to interact in, in a similar fashion. There'll be a degree of competition, uh, inter-trade in effect in a seamless manner that people won't really be aware of. And, uh, and I think that might well be, you know, the future we start to see. And it, it's good because it means that none of us need to sit here boring unduly about um, any particular issues on any one chain over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that'll become apparent, you know, at the moment we are just very focused on the first really big implementation of EOS uh, itself. But um, it's good what, what's happening right now on the network because it's forcing us all to to look at uh, uh, different aspects that are, are maybe working or not working as well as we would like, and, and it's going to uh, enable us to all consider what we as individuals want to participate in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just uh, I was listening to someone was talking about uh, Bitcoin, and they were talking about Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, BSV, and then they said they look at all of them as as Bitcoin. Um, and then with the happening coming up, there's going to be kind of competition with the miners and they may have to kind of choose a chain and orphan the others almost to, to stay in the profit. Um, I, was, I was thinking that the foresight when EOSIO was built to have these sister chains that are all kind of one uh, growing uh, organism it, it almost, uh, it was so big. I mean, that was that was such an intelligent idea because when you see Bitcoin just kind of finally, they're kind of finally coming to that realization that you need to be dynamic, but it's going to, you know, as Bitcoin uh, halves and halves, they're, it's going, they're going to have to pick chains. Um, with the OSIO, there doesn't need to necessarily be this culminating event where people need to pick a chain. It can continue to grow and go, you know, the competition can be sustained and uh, continue to iterate. So I think that's a really exciting, one of the really exciting overlooked parts of, of EOS IO is, is this uh, like this example. Um, And Talos is, is, is a really cool specific example because they're doing the worker proposals and things that people maybe wanted to see on EOS IO, but uh, you know, it was, was, or on EOS, but it was maybe not a good time to try it. So. No, I agree. I, I, what I like most about, about the the Talos community and is, is the way they have been bold enough to try some very different things from the outset as part of the design of the network. They didn't just look at EOS and say, right, well, you know, we we didn't get necessarily in and, and weren't as successful as VPs as, as we'd have wished. Some of the a lot of a lot of the founding teams did run, but then didn't didn't work out for them. That actually, I don't think was the underlying driver anyway. But 
but it was good because they looked at it and said, well, these are, these are things we don't like. We're seeing already on the early main there. So these are, pro- these are things we're going to identify as problems. And, uh, and uh, yeah, the other example you give is the work of proposal system. So you know, we have never completed a, a successful work of proposal and funded something on the network for Rios, even though that was always part of the, the premise, was the way that the network would self-fund using its resources, hence the whole point of the EOSIO saving account was to, to be there for that, that saving for investment back into the network in ways that individuals couldn't necessarily afford. And the, form, the, the equivalent of sort of government uh, open expenditure on your infrastructure, right? Now, uh, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, by seeing a, a working version of that, along with things like uh, proper enforcement of block producers who, who are underperformed being taken out of their position and unregistered. That's great to see because we're now seeing an alternative, um, an alternative configuration work and we'll be able to all assess over time. Is that actually better? Is that something that for the mainnet ought to be adopting? And then of course there's the, the other side of it, which is if the mainnet chooses not to adopt it, it may end up finding it's not as competitive in the long term. So that will be a, a choice that token holders need to effectively enforce by a combination of their own opinions proxy voting, and, and literally um, being very uh, involved in deciding who they vote for. So hopefully over time, I think this will all start to work through on the, um, the main net as much as all the other chains. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, let's transition and talking about Shintai a little bit. This is one of the really cool um, things that's been going on and that, that it's been growing so much lately. I mean, it's been like a month since I kind of dug in and looked at what was going on and, and there's, there's a lot of things I hadn't realized. So um, why don't you give an overview of maybe how Shin, what are the features of Shintai right now? So, so right now what, what you still see, uh, although it's about the, the there, there is a, a Shintai 1.0, which the original premise of it, was to unlock the capability for token holders to realize passive income as an ongoing source for, the, for their token utility. And the token utility is, is your CPU and net rights in a, in a nutshell. So um, from, from day one, we looked to build something for the community that we thought was going to be needed on, the, on, the, uh, on any of the EOS chains. And, and that was to build some sort of leasing exchange that enable people to trade that bandwidth back and forth as required uh, and auto-assign it and auto-renew it and make it a fire-and-forget type service over time as we, we built it out. And, and it, you know, as it turned out, it was fortuitous of us to, to start the planning of that as early as we did because when we deployed it in October, we had that CPU boom just kicking off and the usage of, of Shintai went through the roof from launch um, right through until really the start of, uh, start of this year. And so that was good for us, I think, to see that, yes, the platform was as scalable as we designed it to be. It handled massive volumes at, at its peak. Uh, but then it's also been interesting seeing, for us, it was the, the eye-opener was looking beyond this one single token use case, which was to say, well, if EOS is being designed um, as a token for you to be able to delegate your utility to someone else, what does that mean for other tokens that don't currently necessarily have that functionality designed into them but could? And the answer is, is actually mind-blowing when you consider it. it. It's the idea you can separate out your ownership and your t- utility on a token and actually therefore realize not just your ownership appreciation or dep- depreciation based on the token price. You can actually, as the, as the network gets more valuable and the demand for whatever that token gives you rights to, because in theory, every token should have utility for it to be back, you know, have a purpose. Uh, that um, 
that ultimately you, there, there is a whole potential world out here of thousands of tokens with uh, the, the ability to generate income for the holders. So we started to look at that and we started to think about what Shintai as an engine could do for that. And it, that's how we, we started to realize that finally we therefore had a, a need for a token model within Shintai itself. So we deliberately didn't put one in for, for the launch of um, Shintai itself because we could never find a justification. And I'm certainly a big believer in not having tokens just for, for the purpose of it. But here, um, we needed a base token for interconversion um, in particular and facilitating conversion efficiency. So what does that practically mean? That means that in a world where you, for example, Brandon, say, well, I've got, I, I'm a Bitcoin holder. And yeah, I quite like the idea of getting into a range of different um, leasing markets and, and realizing these, these uh, returns. And some of them are going to be, uh, you know, as much as 20, 30%, and some of them are going to be very low and only about 2 or 3%. So which ones do I go into? Well, you, you as a holder might make your, your mind up and look at that and say, well, I don't, the reason these are a higher return is because the, the actual tokens themselves quite volatile. Maybe they lose value and the project isn't, isn't that good. So to lease out the utility, you'd have to pay a lot or, or maybe there's just no demand at all on, on certain projects. But for others where they're very stable and or they're a good token to be holders over any period of time, you've got the, the inverse. You, uh, you can effectively um, say, well, in that case, you don't even need to pay that much um, in terms of interest because holders of that token tend to get a capital appreciation over time anyway. So in effect, therefore, what you're able to do with, with Shintai or will be able to is with this new, new iteration is be able to pick out a series of markets that you wish to be exposed to and it will auto-convert you via checks as a, as a base conversion across as, as, as required to fill the demand for leasing in all these different types of markets. So you might take 10 Bitcoin have them divided out across into you know a thousand different token token markets to find the places of highest return and it will generate out you continuous passive income conversion back to checks conversion back out into whatever other tokens and it'll start just generating more and more and more income on an ongoing basis and at some point then obviously you might want to then exit back out and actually you don't even need to exit back out into bitcoin could be into eos could be into ethereum could be into fiat further down the line so we're we're looking ahead at this this uh, potential future market where these fungible tokens, like the likes of EOS, like the DAP token and and the Lumios network and so on, where people are going to want to um, continuously generate the highest passive income sources they can, as part of the you know to crypto like this being uh, part of your portfolio. So that in itself is, is a compelling uh, driver that's driving the project forward and building out and turning that that. Uh, model into a reality. It's also going to mean that these are, that there are numerous projects that are adding leasing capabilities in directly off the back of this thing. The DAP network is one, Lumios is another, for example, and Pixios are already looking at it as well from the, the perspective of uh, digital assets and leasing. Um, so that, that's one big side of the project. The other, um, which is, is a hot area in this space anyway, is, is NFT, so the non-fungible token space in, it primarily compromising um, comprises of things like the gaming sector itself. And in terms of what that practically means, well, it, it's really looking at things like the skins market in the, in the gaming sector and, and how much money is flowing around in these gray markets right now. And there is an opportunity for both the gaming companies themselves and the users to actually start using these and trading back and forth and making real world money um, in these digital items. 
So there is a massive, massive multi-billion dollar market out there um, ready to be unlocked. Now, what goes uh, hand in hand with trading of NFTs, of course, is leasing of NFTs as well. So um, the DGIP standard, for example, is being built out, as is uh, Simple Assets is another. And I think both of those are, are looking ahead at the, the potential of being able to uh, lease digital assets as well. So it's such that, for example, you're a gamer and you say, well, I'm going to go away now on a, on a two-week vacation. I might as well lease out my sword and uh, an access to my dragon. And, you know, you can have them on this variety of different criteria. You can use the sword for ceremonial purposes, but you can take the, the dragon out into battle. And these are the prices for them. And you just park them out and the service um, will service these gaming companies and markets to actually enable them to actually find the buyers and sellers peer-to-peer, -peer, match them, and, and off you go. So this all, again, feeds into the checks model as well. Um, it's kind of, you know, what's interesting about a space like this is I think everybody can see the massive potential of it. What we're yet to be able to see, clearly, any of us, um, is exactly how these markets are going to evolve. So how are game, gaming companies and gamers going to want to interact? Nobody fully yet knows the dynamics of that. It's a bit like looking at the social media world before the likes of MySpace and then Facebook and Twitter and trying to speculate. I wonder how people socialize on the internet in the future. Mm. You know, we've got these bulletin boards right now, mm. which are kind of cool. And I can post messages and someone can see it a bit like a kind of glorified version of Craigslist. But I wonder what people will do in the future. And of course, if people had even had these visions of YouTube podcasts, you know, and so on and so forth and Reddit and yeah, it's mind-blowing when you look at the, the diversity of the way this has come out. And I think the NFT space has similar um, evolution ahead of it. And it's going to be fascinating, therefore, for us to see. The, the really great news about that is EOS is a prime place to, to be a part of that and, uh, and crypto in itself as well. Because this, I think this is one of the going to be the big first use cases that really shows the credibility of, of crypto in itself because it's absolutely essential for tokenization to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's this continuing blurring of the lines kind of between the digital world and, um, and, the, and the real world. Especially when you start getting these assets that can live in the digital world in the same way they live in the real world, uh, all those things that you can do with a, you know, with a, with some sort of collectible item or some sort of useful item in the real world, you kind of just picture being able to do that in the same way in the digital world. So, you know, you were talking about video games and I, if I needed to go on some quest and I, it, this, there's this impossible boss at the end and I can only beat it with this one sword. Maybe I just go find that sword to lease it out just for this quest. And then that's all I need it for. You know, like there's, there's, it changes. It's, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but, but you see, and, and I agree with you. So there's the functional, um, utility ones like that, which are, you, you can kind of see how the markets are going to work with that, which is, I'm really focused on trying to, I don't know, achieve something in a game or a, or a virtual environment of some sort. But then actually you get the more kind of blingy ones as well. So people like to have fun with this stuff too. So, you know, sometimes they'll pay a fortune for something just, just that looks good on their character and, and so on and so forth. So that's why the idea of uh, Pixios embracing the space is so compelling. Because actually, if you think about what, um, what art is, it is an asset in whatever form it is. And, uh, and if it can be uniquely owned and, and accessible in some form, the idea, for example, that you know, Pixios deploy a virtual art gallery in the high fidelity world when it, when it launches, and, and that, that will have a currency linked to the EOS IO space as well. 
you imagine it, right? You're, you're going to be able to go out and lease pieces of work, your, your artwork as artists that people can borrow and put in their virtual, virtual shops or casinos that they set up in, in, in this digital world. You know, Magic will have all moved up Telegram by that point, and it will be in the equivalent of some sort of, you know, cantina episode of Star Wars, where we're all just <laughs> sitting around gambling and, and, and uh, you know, and, and talking over a drink and, and so on and so forth. And, and it's interesting because I think that's the kind of evolution ahead we have to start thinking about, which is we, we are where we are now, but where are we going? And what is actually out there around the corner in the future for all of us in terms of how we interact on the internet and how do we, we uh, conduct business together? How do we uh, socialize together and so on and so forth? And every time I start to look into this, at the implications of it, it's huge for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I have VR and I actually have a little VR company that we make VR products. But um, I'm, I've been in high fidelity and I've gone and uh, messed around in the, um, you know, it's it just basically an open world. But when you start interacting with like groups of people, in virtual reality, the kind of this switch flicks, and you say, "Oh my gosh! Like this is this. It's it's so natural. It's almost kind of scary that it's so natural. Like yeah. you walk, you kind of walk into a group of people that are talking, and in the same way that you wouldn't just like walk into the middle of the circle and stand in front of someone and like interrupt. You kind of you know ease your way into the side, like stand and wait for your turn. You know, like all these social dynamics." just transfer so naturally to virtual reality and to high fidelity that um, the the idea that we wouldn't be doing a podcast in the future like this, but in the near future, we would be maybe sitting in some kind of really cool uh, room together with our full bodies and all the body language and interactions going on. I mean, it's such a natural. You can uh, see, it, 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 would, it would, well, your, your first reaction would be to think, well, how does it work in, in the real world? And it would be, you and I would be sitting up on a stage on a, on a sofa having mm-hmm. a chat. And then you think, yeah, in the, in the virtual world, it's even better. You can have uh, people floating up above you, looking down in the audience. The audience can be worried to do. And, it, and, you know, you can have, you know, a, a couple of dragons who are, who are watching as well. You know, it's, it's great. The, the lack of limitations as to how we'll, we'll be able to do this, it would not surprise me. It really becomes imagination is your only limit in terms of where this could all evolve. And that's why it's so hard to predict where this is going to go. Because some seriously creative people will come up with ideas that you and I haven't even thought of, mm-hmm. and uh, and it will just click, and people will just go, "This is awesome! This yeah. is such a cool idea! This is how I want to interact constantly, and you know, this is how I want to do my my trading of NFTs, and this is how I want the the leasing mechanisms to work within that, and so on and so forth." Uh, you can see a digital economy like that becoming massive, mm-hmm. absolutely massive, and what's so appealing about it too is that. Um, you know, I think Chintai is, is near uniquely placed to be a, a, a servicing engine for that. Um, we're working quite hard right now on defining a, a standard um, related to leasing too that we're going to encourage um, wide, widespread adoption of. So there's going to be some publication of that standard very soon um, before it then gets encoded up. We're going to be seeking out as much industry and community feedback as we can as well. But again, this all feeds into the different stages of the project as they as they commence. And you know, the advantage I think of having a, uh, a token raise uh, and distribution carried out over lots of months like this in, in the way that this is being done, quite, quite similar to the Dutch auction style of the, the original EOS raise, is that it just gives uh, people a lot of time to digest information as it comes out and watch the project, watch the team, watch the, the outputs or lack of, and be able to say, is this a credible project that I want to uh, be, be a part of or not? 
And, and I think that's such a valuable thing versus one of these fast... Um, in fact, this is a, also a reason why, in one sense, I'm not a huge fan of just these airdropping of tokens onto another distribution because it doesn't necessarily buy you engaged users and it doesn't really um, necessarily guarantee you're going to get people who want to partake. So, you know, my, my wallet, for example, is full of airdrop tokens that I've never touched, just as a, on a personal level. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, just quickly on that airdropped tokens and people having their wallets full of airdrop tokens. I want an app that goes in and sells all my airdrop tokens and consolidates yeah. them into one, you know, kind of in the That way. is a cool idea. And actually, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. That's a, that's a great idea um, because, you know, there's a number I wish with hindsight I'd gone and sold when there was a, was a hype cycle around them. Mm-hmm. And, and now I look at them and they're worth a fraction of it. It's not even worth my time clearing the wallet out in one sense, mm-hmm. but... If something was going to do it where it just took a small commission and cleared it out, great idea. I'd be all over that. And, uh, and maybe you could just pick the ones you don't want to sell and actually want to hold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but that's this, this big idea of just this unknown market out there in the same way that social media was so unknown. NFTs, uh, utility tokens, this big dynamic world that we're just kind of opening Pandora's box for. Um, you know, that's why I'm excited about the Chex token. That's why I'm excited about Shintai is because it is right there at the beginning kind of seeing the possibility and just, you know, taking the first steps. I mean, you guys are building kind of the the infrastructure to let this happen as it happens. And we have no clue what's going to happen, but um, but it, but it's a big, big idea. And it's, it's fun to, to see the very beginnings of that. Um, well, that's t- totally. And, and so that, that's been one of the challenges about trying to ensure that a leasing standard that, that we all agree um, is incredibly flexible to, to be able to meet any kind of behaviors and any kind of uh, attributes within a token, uh, an NFT, that you can possibly conceive of. And that, that in itself, therefore, requires quite a lot of thought about um, both the design of the, the leasing standard. It, need, it requires thought on the likes of um, standards like um, simple assets and goods to make sure they're flexible as well. And then it feeds back into the underlying um, trading and leasing engines as well to ensure that when you're trying to make markets in these goods, that it's not just chaos. And that, for example, you know, you and I might go, well, I really want this sword, and uh, and there's about six different types of them. Uh, and, and you know, I, I need to be able to find other people prepared to lease them out and or sell them on a range of terms in a range of ways. Now, you know, I I can see lots of different ways that these things could be structured, from traditional centralized markets to you know, more eBay styling um, of, of interfaces to um, more Reddit style, whereby you've got, you know, moderators who run their own markets. There's lots of ways that can be done. They're, they are the obvious ways to do it because that's, um, that's how things have been done in other social media platforms to date. So you just are looking at how structuring of, in, of things works uh, and what works and what doesn't. Uh, I think actually, as I say, this is where innovation will really triumph because it's going to be taking a, a step back and actually trying to understand the nature of these markets and what do people really want to do that uh, maybe they're being constrained from doing properly on, on more simple implementations. So a good example, what, why did MySpace ultimately fail? Well, my, MySpace ultimately failed when Facebook came along and enabled people to connect with their friends, decide who they wanted to have, you know, be able to see certain information and not um, have a news feed. It did things differently from just your own space that you then had to go and manually look up and search other people in a, in a different way. 
if you then look at the NFT space, it's going to have those same kind of facets of, of interaction and so on and so forth. You know, if you're interested in certain types of NFTs, maybe you want to be able to see more information related to those NFTs in a different kinds of way. And if so, what would that be? These are the sorts of big questions we're asking as we, we work through the analysis process. Um, but I think what will be good is, you know, we've got some really exciting first implementations of markets that are going to be coming from, I think, Scatter and Link to both got NFT marketplaces coming. And from the looks of the, the marketplaces, they're kind of more traditional, how I would expect uh, marketplaces to kind of function. And, and, and I think, therefore, it's going to be great to see what really works for them and what doesn't in those, those early iterations. The one thing that's absolutely sure, this space is so big, there's more than enough room for everybody in this space. So it's really just going to be a case of, I think, um, some healthy competition between the different uh, ideas. And, uh, and of course, the gaming companies themselves, particularly, are going to want in on this as well. So it's important to, to not forget that they themselves will be marketplaces of their own. Yeah, and you already see in the NFT uh, marketplace, in the, with the NFT standard, you already see competition within gaming companies. I mean, you see that uh, Mythical Games is a supporter of D-Goods, and then ITM Games, who is, you know, is creating their own um, marketplace for NFTs. So, the, you know, each, each gaming company will want theirs to kind of be the standard, which in, in each one will try to out iterate and have better UX. Yeah. So we I, can well, I, I personally, I, I personally, sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, I personally like the, the mythical um, games approach more, which is to look at uh, a forming an industry standard collaboratively. Mm -hmm. Instinctively to me, that is the way forwards because for any markets to actually effectively interact, you, you really want a common standard. You see that across everything we have with technology globally is that people eventually get together as an industry to try and standardize. So the idea of competing protocols, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we have two credible competing protocols, which is D-Goods and Simple Assets. And the best one would eventually triumph and or it wouldn't even necessarily be the best one if you look at the VHS Betamax history of, of, of technology. It's actually the one that gets the widest adoption that will most likely be the, the one that triumphs, although hopefully it's also the one that's strongest. So from, from Gentile's perspective, we'll support uh, all the major protocols in those early days, and, and we expect a consolidation into, into one over time. And, uh, and, and I, you know, I think this is all part of uh, a healthy growth out of a really interesting sector that's rightly getting a lot of attention. Yeah. Now, what's the main difference, would you say, between D-goods and simple assets? Oh, I, I, I'm probably not best to comment right now because I think they're both um, – at a point where they they both got very well defined phase one protocols um, that are that are out there. Um, there are a range of, of differences, I think, in terms of um, how they're looking to implement. And there's going to be, for example, a uh, distributed MSIG related to uh, simple assets, of which DL42 is also um, uh, one of the MSIG signatories on that. But um, whereas uh, the the D goods perspective is this idea of a debt and a token. So really, they're giving everybody everything they need in terms of core functionality to do um, transference and trading of, uh, of, of the, the NFT itself through callable functions. And you, uh, you just literally deploy the open source code into, into a, at the token level, if you wish. And that's kind of cool as a, as a concept. What it doesn't do is make markets, however. So if you think about um, what that practically means, it, it means it's great if I, I happen to bump into Brandon in, in the virtual world and Brandon bumps into David and we, 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 I say, hey, Brandon, I like that hat, that virtual hat of yours right now. How much do you want for it? And you say, well, you can borrow it. You can lease it off me for, for the next two weeks. That's great. But what happens if I want a hat 
and uh, and I'm I'm around in the virtual world and there's no one around. Well, you know, this is where market making happens. And you say, well, actually, I want to know all the users who are currently you know out there with a hat like that uh, of these characteristics and are available to either buy or lease on these terms. And and that's the market making engines that are going to sit on as another level alongside the protocols and uh, and the standards. And and this is why it's all very cool because we're going to see really great innovation that goes alongside that. I think. And and again, Shintai is unusually well placed. I think with its um, its market making uh, and order matching engine to actually assist with with a lot of this processing. And I hope therefore that um, we'll be in a position. To uh, to announce some good commercial partnerships in this space as a result of that too, and um, yeah, that that's that's all going to feed into the roadmap and the delivery. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and on that roadmap also, I see that uh, it looks like over the counter trading uh, in the future. Yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, I, I, well, over the over the counter trading um, is is effectively bespoke trading. So um, that that is something that's actually ready to go for um, EOS CPU leasing already. The, the the thing is, of course, that uh, the deployment of the Rex and, and by, Dan was very clever with the design of it because what Dan was able to do is is by making changes to the system contract is, is get around some of the challenges that every other application has and uh, and it's meant therefore that it hasn't really scared off um, whales going into the Rex and using the Rex for the first time. That the, the reason that the OTC market was originally envisaged was a way to enable whales to lease without remotely surrendering custody of their tokens because that was a valid concern that everybody would have when you were over certain holdings. Um, but actually, it now has massive applications instead for a range of other markets instead. And the OTC um, market also has uh, a, a range of applications for, um, for NFTs as well. So luckily, we've built the engine. It's ready to go. It's just that we don't think there's sufficient demand for it on EOS um, in terms of the EOS token itself to be worthwhile deploying. What we're instead focusing on right now, incidentally, is the we just deployed the automated leasing service. So if you ask, well, what does that mean? What that means is that the, the next stage of um, resource management on chain is to remove any interaction with the chain whatsoever. It's, you know, no, there was a time when we were all religiously having to keep an eye on the amount of CPU we had staked on, in our EOS, uh, and it was starting to imp- impact just basic functionality at the peak of the CPU boom. Now we're at a back back to the point nearer like the network launch itself, whereby no one cares anymore. Doesn't matter if I've got 10 EOS state or not, and there's usually spare capacity in the network. This is great, but actually, it, it seems reasonable to assume as the as the economy in EOS grows again, that we will start to see certain pressure points and times again. And when that happens, this is where an automated leasing service, particularly for businesses, becomes an essential thing. Um, because what it's going to enable them to do and, and people that sign up is that they don't have any kind of fees up front at all. All that happens is that it enables um, them to uh, put in a, 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 an amount of EOS, a bit like you would uh, make some money available for your electricity bills on a monthly basis. And you don't worry about whether or not your TV or uh, any other electrical appliance is going to be supplied with power. It's all supplied by the provider and you just pay a bill at the end. So uh, now... The, the analogy, therefore, for you as an application running on the EOS mainnet, it goes back to the end users. And particularly if they're in things like gambling, you don't want them running out of CPU. You really want to encourage them to be your users. And uh, the, the automated leasing service enables both any of your, your own application accounts to be watched and any users as well. And it will release a, a one EOS to them um, whenever there's actually it hits a limitation point uh, and just gradually issues them out on an ongoing basis. Very slowly. Very low cost, very efficient, 
uh, it effectively means that you can put in relatively small amounts of EOS and, and just be absolutely certain that you and your users will never run out of any, any resourcing problems at all. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that, that's, excuse me. That's, that's a fantastic uh, foresight there again, of course. Um, And then it looks like you mentioned the DAP network earlier. Can you talk about launching the DAP network and what that looks like? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, uh, I mean, at the moment, certainly EOS 42 is not a DSP. So the DAP service um, providers are are intended to be effectively a competing um, model whereby they compete with one another for to, to provide services to to the um, various apps, and they do this with things like virtual RAM and eventually virtual CPU to enable mass scaling, ultra cheap of resources across the network on, on a range of applications. Uh, it's poten- got the potential to be a game changer in my view in terms of how applications can be built on chain and what can be built on chain. So I think it's incredibly exciting. It, it, it further lowers the costs of doing business on chain and can actually remove a lot of the direct interaction elements too, in theory as well. Uh, and now I know, for example, that EOS Nation in particular are a very big DSP already. They're doing a lot of the um, work, for example, for, I don't think it's confidential to name it, that the checks raise is fully KYC. So, because we, we wanted to be absolutely sure about the way that we um, followed all of the spirit of various rules globally in terms of how token issuances take place going forwards. And um, one of the services that's provided by a Swiss provider um, uses the EOS Detected tool that um, EOS Nation built, and they are, they are also the, uh, the DSP for the KYC service for all of its needs on-chain. So when I registered um, for KYC, incidentally, on the, um, on the DAP launch, they used the same KYC provider, and I noticed a DSP um, related transaction on my account, which was covered by EOS Nation. So you can see already this is a live network that's active and is starting to get some traction. Um, and I think it's personally it's great because what you're seeing is the first example of some early use cases being dominated by an early DSP. You know, they'll get some competition from others who maybe look to undercut them or provide superior services another way. And so I'm, I'm excited for the DAP network. I think it's got huge potential to change the way we do business on chain. Um, and then looking at the Shintai roadmap, it on the roadmap there's full custody peer-to-peer token leasing. Um, yeah, can uh, you explain a little bit about the impact and, and what that is? So, so there's a couple of things that the um, there is the potential now with the way that we, we've um, architected 2.0 that we could actually make all of the types of fungible token leasing. So EOS is one example, fully peer-to-peer. In, in, as, as one option if, if there's a high demand for that. Um, but another is that that feeds into the design of the, the NFT markets as well, such that it can all be peer-to-peer rather than the idea of it having to go into a centralized custodian in any form and so on and so forth. So it, it's, it's about ensuring that um, the customers on both sides complete um, either a trade or a lease and money can exchange both ways related to payment for that service or for that asset but with complete certainty still. And that's the challenge of, of making um, this kind of activity peer-to-peer is always been that, that certainty principle. Well, you know, if I, if I offer to delegate um, my utility for, for my hat across to you uh, so you can use it in the game for the next, uh, next month, how do I know you're not going to unstake it and undelegate if the whole thing is peer-to-peer? And that's the problem we've managed to um, effectively get to, to the bottom of and solve 
with some clever design. And I would say it's mostly the dev teams who've come up and, and solved this problem. Killer. So do you, that, that makes a ton of sense for NFTs and, and, and that type of market. Um, it's not fully necessary for, like you said, fungible tokens like EOS. Do you see there being a demand for that? Is that something that you guys are, are pushing towards or is it kind of, uh, you'll see what I happens? See, yeah, I think it's a, we, we'll see what happens there because the, the peer-to-peer market was intended um, if, there was, if there was a need. But we did always expect the Rex to potentially um, change that dynamic of the market. And uh, it was also conceived at a time when demand was just going through the roof of CPU and hard to foresee where uh, the direction of that was going. Um, we were looking at ways to ensure that, again, that we encouraged as many large token holders to, to step into the market and start to cheapen the price of CPU for everybody. Um, but peer-to-peer, it doesn't really seem to be necessary in my view. I think the idea, instead of pulling the resources into a giant uh, liquidity pool that is callable and de- can be delegated out to others, I think the Rex is, is, uh, is built for commercial scale, in my view. It's, it's by design, designed to be the resource exchange for your CPU leasing. Um, and in the future, you know, I think we've worked out ways that we can potentially leverage that liquidity for the automated leasing service we've now just, just rolled out and, uh, and uh, are about to start announcing a lot more details on um, so that eventually it will just be that, you know, it could be whether you realize it or not, you're, you're getting income from the Rex, but actually uh, it could be that that same um, token utility is then being used by the automated leasing service that we have uh, out to a range of other custodians. Um, the, the nice thing, though, about the, the dynamic of the free Shintai market, which is a completely pure free market, is that supply and demand will always govern and enable liquidity to scale as required. We saw that with the, the growth of the markets up to 22 million plus at their peak. Um, and that, that definitely applies here, which is ultimately that um, if, if demand for the automated leasing service got to a certain point, the rates would simply rise. Uh, the people are definitely prepared to pay a premium for a service like that over the, the mere based rex rates. And it will ultimately mean that um, the, the liquidity level would just simply scale up with that because it will attract more people in at higher rates that are superior to the rex. So, you know, I, I, don't, I think a combination of the two will ultimately apply, though, and I'm pretty, pretty happy that I think we've got both because I think it's going to give some really good options for both businesses and users. So you think on the with with uh, less when CPU usage and RAM usage isn't skyrocketing, kind of people are more likely to just set it and forget it in Rex. But as there's this huge demand or uh, there's pressure on the markets, then the free market becomes more appealing because people are getting a, a better return on their EOS. Is that what, is that what I heard there? Uh, I think, yeah, uh, broadly, what, what I'm saying is that if, for example, you're, you've got a rate of 1%, let's say, um, on the Rex ongoing, um, but supply would start falling um, on, because of demand being so high for the automated leasing service from liquidity in, in Shintai, eventually you, people would, the, the rate would start to go up and up. So instead, it would suddenly, say, get to 2%. And... Anybody on the Rex would go, well, I can double my money now by, by leasing out via, by Shintai instead. And actually, that works for me in, in some liquidity goes. For other people, they'd say, no, I'm, I'm happy where I am. I don't like the custodian aspect of that. I'm, I'll stick with the Rex. And, and that's the nature of supply and demand. As, as the leasing rates went up and up and up, for example, in the peak, more and more and more people were incentivized to go in and say, 
cap rate at 40%, I'm, I'm more than happy APR to, uh, to go in and, and take that inverted commas risk on a, on a system that's clearly well proven with 11 BPM sick on it, you know, on the, on the account. And, uh, and so, so it proved. But as I say, I think the reality is that um, tapping into the, the Rex's liquidity uh, and be able to utilize it properly is, is the future of this as a service instead. Yeah. And I mean, just personally that I, I was, went down that exact road that you just explained there. I've, I've used both Rex and Shintai at different points in the market and, and just because um, for the exact reasons you said. So that does make sense from a supply and demand standpoint. Um, so uh, I definitely see that happening. Can you, can you talk just a little bit more about the using the Rex liquidity for Shintai? I'm missing a part there. I'm not seeing what that, I'm not understanding that part. Um, so if you think about it right now, the Rex pool is about 65 million EOS, of which about two and a half million is, or maybe three, let's say, charitably, is being actually leased out to anybody. So we've got about 62 million EOS sitting around, not actually being used for anything, but it's, it's been paid for by the, the fees recycling. So the question is, well, how, how do we get higher utilization of that? And the answer is that actually you need more customers to, to use the, the, the Rex liquidity. And that's what I'm talking about, the uh, Shintai automated leasing service tapping into for additional liquidity too. So what it may do is that it eventually will have competing sources of liquidity. And we, you know, Shintai's got its own liquidity sources too. If they're, if, it, if they're cheaper, it'll draw on that first. And then if it needs to, it can draw into, into the Rex's liquidity as well. And it will simply just get the optimal pricing and the cheapest um, EOS possible um, for the end customers as part of the um, automated leasing service and that fire and forget service that it's put about. Uh, and, yeah. it can, and it can effectively infinitely scale with this too. And it's probably worth mentioning that Chex is integrated into this service too. So this, this then is one of the first integrations of Chex starting to be built in. And, and this is going to be a gradual continuous process over time as it becomes more and more integrated into this whole ecosystem to build out. Yeah, and that makes sense. And this this gradual process is is cool to see each little step happening. Um, and then looking down the road, another reason that I'm excited about checks is just this vision of in the future possible, uh, you know, bond type markets and and future type markets. And you know, it's just it's. Uh, the vision is so dynamic. There, there's so much going on there long term. Do you want to talk about uh, in uh, bonds or futures or what the possibility? Yeah, well, like there? absolutely. So, so, so the the yeah the futures market or it may be options is, is the better word for it. Um, they are are envisaged um, for the 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 mature final model. And what what does the final model mean? What do I mean by that? What that means. Right now, you have a, a, an environment where if you um, were to put in, say, 10 Bitcoin and invest them out across a range of tokens, let's say you put them into, into, um, into the DAT network, into EOS, and into several others, during that period where you're leased out, you're the owner of those tokens. So what you expose yourself to is conversion risk. So all the markets, in, as they gradually deploy, are going to be exactly like the EOS one. They're going to be native to native, which means you go in with EOS, you get EOS back out, and you lease in EOS. And the same will be for the DAP network. You, so we can, we can facilitate the transference for them via a, a variety of different means, but it's not fully automated. Uh, now, the reason we're doing that is because to, to actually then do the full model, which is that there is checks being the full conversion layer between all of these different tokens, um, and there's a range of huge efficiencies from doing that. 
you have a continuous liquidity board of different tokens. You've got checks also being used as pairing between these as they take place efficiently within these cross markets. But to remove conversion risk, you need um, access to an options market, which means that for a small insurance fee, you can completely lock yourself in and come back out at the exact same price you went in at. So, so you list, if you want to lease out 10 Bitcoin, you need to be able to insulate yourself if you wish from conversion risk. And to do that, you would pay, take out an option. Now, what that means is that there's going to be checks holders on the other side um, who are um, effectively going to be largely checks whales who, who carry out the insurance market and fill the other side of those orders ongoing. And sometimes they're going to lose, but most of the time overall net, like any insurance market, they're going to win. Because the way options pricing works is it's, it's linked to volatility of, of um, token pairings. And so the, the long and short of this is that as we get to that mature model, the, um, the options market will build out and provide yet another passive income source for checks holders, that they will be able to sit there and also cover the conversion risk for other users. And um, sometimes, most of the majority of the time, the, the other holders are going to find the fee for that, that, that conversion risk coverance is, coverage is not worth it versus the actual change that took place. But sometimes they'll, get, they'll, they'll find it was absolutely great. But like you and I pay for travel insurance, we 90% of the time we don't ever use it and every now and then it works out and you say, well, I'm kind of glad I had it. But I like the idea of not having that exposure. But there's insurers on the other side who the job is to take that exposure and they make lots of money from doing it. That's, that's the nature of how you cover conversion risk in this, this very large market where you're, you're pairing out and enabling people to realize passive income across these ranges of sources. So that's, that's one side of things. The other is the DAP bond market, which is um, a way for providing additional financing for uh, crypto companies that are more established projects that have got credible teams and businesses and so on and so forth. They don't always want to be able to, to, to be necessarily selling uh, equity and other things like that. They sometimes just need to access working capital and a range of things, a bit like the way bond, corporate bonds are issued now. Um, so for us, we had most of the mechanisms to, to do that already and, and have secondary tokenized bond markets where you can trade based on face value that generate out um, continuous payments of uh, interest for borrowing the, these funds. And over time, the crypto company would pay it back um, as part of that or maybe issue out a new series of bonds to pay off the original holders and so on. Um, that's not the problem at all, the, the deployment of this as a concept. It is getting the regulatory oversight for a market of that nature. Because when you issue tokens, uh, tokenized bonds of that nature, they have almost, most definitely have got legal impl implications as well. So we want to make sure that we, um, we partner with a, uh, a financial uh, regulator and ensure that that side of the market is going to be very different um, from uh, other maybe financial products you've seen to date. There's going to be uh, a range of individual um, investors who are maybe more sophisticated in their nature. Some of them may be more institutional. And that's going to help bring much bigger um, investment capital uh, into the crypto space in a more legitimate way that's more measurable for people too. There'll be performance linked as well. So you're not going to see these sort of scammy over promises. You're going to see people being judged ongoing for the quality of their, their raises. And they won't raise if their reputation is, is low quality. And, you'll see gradings of these bonds in the same way as you do in the, in the real world relating to one company or another. The quality of your debt is, is directly linked to you as a team and so on and so forth. So uh, that, that's also therefore in, in progress as well as a project. A lot of it's right now in the uh, interaction with regulators um, globally perspective to work out who would be the best um, regulator to oversight these markets. 
Um, we've also got some talks with a couple of VC funds about partnering on that as a venture, um, which I, you know, I'm not certainly making promises on any level. That I'm just explaining what's going on. So we've got talks with regulators globally and talks with some, some VC funds that are, are um, uh, you know, interested in what, what, what this potentially means from a, a range of levels is either to invest in or as in the um, funders for the, these bonds or, or certain other kind of support services they could potentially offer. It's exciting. You know, it's very interesting. I mean, there's like every, every kind of uh, fork down the road that you take, there's this, this, there's this long five year, 10 year, like possibility. That's just amazing. You know, whether it's through, you know, leasing utility tokens and how big that is and NFTs and different markets and uh, just these passive income streams. I mean, it's, it's, very almost overwhelming to think about all the, all the things that, that, uh, your team's up to. So, um, it's really cool. And, uh, the check token, a very, very cool concept. I will, I'm going to keep following that closely. Um, was there anything that we overlooked or kind of, um, you know, breezed through as far as checks token or Shintai that, that we haven't hit on yet? No, not at all. I mean, I, I think it's it's just going to be good for the community, hopefully, to to watch the project unfold now over the next uh, the next six months. You know, the advantage of doing this this slow distribution it finishes, I believe, on the fourth of December, um, the, the daily issuance, is that it gives people time to assess us as a team and and us as a project and the progress and the potential of it. And and I think that's great. Um, unfortunately. It, it, it does exclude people from China and the US, the race. So that, that's unfortunate, but that's the nature of, of the regulatory environment we're in where you know, certain governments are not giving um, clear enough guidance for us to, to be able to go that route right now. But on the flip side of it is that uh, I, you know, it's not going to stop people using Shintai either way. And, uh, and, and the checks token and its inherent utility yeah, are, are going to be accessible regardless to people. So yeah, it's, it's, a bit like the fact that, you know, you, you for example, have um, and use EOS fairly regularly, right, Brandon? You technically didn't, didn't get hold of it in the, in the auctions, though, right? It's the, it's the same kind of nature, though, that once this, um, uh, uh, you know, tokens themselves, governments want to kind of control the dynamics of this stuff, but it's, it's impossible to fully control it. All we can do is, is ensure that the, the issuance of tokens is, is fine. Somebody, somebody asked on a channel and said, well, you know, is, does, does this mean I can't move my, my checks tokens to another wallet? And the answer is, of course you can. This is a public blockchain. You can do whatever you want once they're actually issued to you. They're your tokens now. Yeah. Nobody controls them. Nobody tells you what you can do with them. So off you, you know, do as you wish. And, and that's the, the nice, in, liberating reality of this environment we're in where anybody can move anything to anywhere. And, and again, it's, it doesn't stifle creativity and uh, the way we all interact with one another. Yeah, I mean, I'll be careful how I word this, but uh, yeah, actually, I won't even say anything. Um, but uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I know what you're probably going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah freedom. Where you you you're called uh, EOS forty two freedom, and and I yeah, I did end up getting my EOS. However, that ended up happening, and and uh, you know, it's, it's a public blockchain, and so the the regulatory environment needs to be kind of um, obeyed. And also, it, it does, but you know, I mean, I will say one one final thing on that. You know, the SEC get a lot of uh, of stick, but the SEC's primary concern is very similar to the the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, which is that um, they are 
primarily concerned about stopping fraud and stopping tax evasion and stopping bad actors um, from uh, from interacting in the financial system. So you, can, I don't think anybody can blame them for looking with a great deal of, of concern at, at this, you know, this anarchic system that's evolved where there is no control and, and being slightly fearful of, of how this is evolving and trying to work out how do we protect you as citizens, but also how do we make sure that this doesn't turn into a, you know, a, a money laundering opportunity for everybody in some fashion or whatever else. And the same could go for drug money and all sorts of other things. So there's nothing wrong with them being a little cautious and maybe slower than those of us in our space would love to see them speed up and mature their thinking in a way that enables US citizens to go through a KYC procedure like this and participate in a raise like this and whatever. But I think that that's all going to come over time once um, the, the likes of the SEC um, get comfortable with the definitions and get comfortable with certain degrees of, of control and maybe not having control over certain things. And that, but they'll get there, I think, and that will come over time as, as projects and blockchains mature and, uh, and the individuals within these, these agencies um, observe behaviors and decide, okay, the scammy behaviors and, and worst practices we saw in 2017 are not being repeated now. We're seeing more intelligent management as they follow the rules of, of other global regulators. I think, therefore, we're happy now putting in these sets of rules for, for the US too. I think that's where the US will, will gradually go. It just isn't going to be leading in this space in terms of regulation. Yeah. And, and you look at, uh, to the SEC's credit, they have stayed out of the way to some extent. And really, the only companies that have actually gotten slapped at this point are kind of egregious uh, scams. So, um, it is. It's, it's been pump and dumpers who, who bypassed and didn't do things like any kind of checks on, on who was investing on what. And they tried to massively overhype it, overstate it, uh, or, or downright didn't deliver anything. You know, they, they published a white paper. They made misleading statements to, to people. They sold them uh, up the road, sold them a couple, some lemons, and then and disappeared off. And, and is it really a surprise that that would be considered fraudulent behavior in any industry? So it absolutely should be in this space too. And, and that's good um, that their focus is that. And it goes back to what I was saying, that they genuinely – the top focus of all the big regulators is protection of consumers as the driving force here. And I know there's, it's always tempting to get the conspiracy theory, big government stuff going in, it's all about control, but actually their job is to be there to oversight the, the conduct of participants in the investment markets in some fashions. And the ICO is obviously uh, uh, being innovative, but it's um, total lack of any kind of controls around it is, is probably something that is going to be uh, it needs to be kind of a, a right middle ground needs to be found. And that's why these um, exchange raisings or another alternative um, proposal for that, where you've got some sort of environment that adds a bit more structure around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, uh, and for all of us in the, the space, most people in the space now, this is uh, building slowly a very strong base to actually build this grand vision of freedom. And, you know, that doesn't happen by uh, trying to, you know, being too overt about it, let's say, you know, we, we can slowly build yeah. this, this wonderful free system uh, the right way. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate your part in doing that. Um, and we're going to probably, me and you will see each other soon. I'll be in Washington, D.C. for the uh, June yep. 1st announcement, which is going to be epic. And then uh, the Tulip Conference is coming up, which is the one-year anniversary of the launch of the, the EOS chain in San Francisco. So, uh, tons of block producers and a bunch of the teams that launched the actual EOSIO chain 
last June. Uh, all did that from San Francisco at the Tulip Conference, and uh, that's happening. Yeah, super cool. Yeah. Yep. But, really yeah, fun. that's right. But by, by pure luck, I remember I was talking to um, the GC of the Lingham, who is one of the primary organizers of, of Tulip back then, and I remember when he was talking about dates for the first Tulip conference, and, and he, he wanted it to be on the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of June, and I said, look, look, you don't want to do that, I said, because EOS is launching on these dates, you know, <laughs> little did I know. <laughs> uh-huh. And and so, you know, I, I, I tried to get him to go for the middle of June, and the best they could get was, uh, I ran, ran about, I think, the 8th, 9th, 10th of, of June, and uh, as it turned out, we obviously had those delays during that period after the launch before we actually launched the mainnet itself and uh and and it yeah you know, the launch date actually was bang on the 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 Tulip conference itself as a result yeah that ended up adding a ton of yeah added ended up adding a ton of excitement to that conference because uh all the block producers or a lot of the block producers staying in one house in San Francisco, you know, and turned into some sort of like cool hacker den from a reality TV show. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was, it, that it was, just turned into a, it turned into a giant sort of uh, libertarian weed smoke smoking, you know, philosophical discussion thing. And, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, and a lot of kind of open discussion with people you've been working with six months and were randomly meeting for the first time at, this point of the network launch it was just very strange what was interesting is is of course most of the technical members of each team were not there during that point they were all manned on station ready for the network launch and so on and so forth but uh but yeah it was was a phenomenal one and uh, there is actually going to be another vp kind of house just like that um as well so i'm staying at that one because they um the organizers were very kind enough they thought it it worked so well last time they were going to do one of those again so it should be fun uh, it's killer. Yeah. Yeah. G's, uh, G's awesome. We, uh, we've, we've hung out quite a bit and, uh, yeah, look forward to the Tulip conference. So, um, if people are in San Francisco or if you want to come into San Francisco, if you're a block producer or if you're just interested in, uh, coming to the conference, it's going to be not only, um, EOS IO, there's going to be a block producer summit, but before that there's a whole, um, emerging technology conference that's going on a few days before then we're going to have the block producer summit. So, um, What's what's the place for people to find uh, find tickets uh, if they want to come? Is it? Do you know the website? Yeah, I don't. I think it might be tulipconf.com, uh, but yeah. I have to check. Apologies. If you Google Tulip Conference. It's not you know people don't need a web address anymore. Just Google Tulip Conference. It's it comes up right at the top, um, and uh, I'll put the link in the in the show notes. But uh, we will be there. A lot of people will be there. And um, any final thoughts on uh, June first as we start to wind down here? Uh, well, I, I thought the um, you know Enrique who does the Dap Stars feed. Yeah, yeah. He, he's a, he's a legend in terms of keeping everything uh, fully up to date. Which is, but he came up with that. I don't know if you saw it. His uh, I wouldn't call it a conspiracy theory video. It was an an- analysis video on whether or not it was all uh, was it Facebook and Telegram related stuff. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and it was really quite compelling. His linkage of all these different ideas. But I love the way it elicited a response from Dan within about. 15, 20 minutes saying, <laughs> yeah. let's not set expectations too high here. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I just yeah. thought that's a great way of saying, look, it's not Facebook and it's not Telegram. So yeah. uh, if I was to guess based on everything that I, I can see, it seems to clearly be pointing towards a social media network, which makes perfect sense because Dan's got proven form le- le- launching a successful blockchain um, social media network. It's a huge space, there's huge demand for it. They, they know what they're doing. They've got the perfect platform to do that and deploy deploy that on 
be very interesting seeing whether it's on the mainnet or whether it's uh, a different chain, a separate EOSIO chain that's going to be doing that, um, and so on and so forth. But I think the most important thing for me is, uh, is, is that I, I think we're about to see the deployment of the first really, really big EOS-based application, for the, you know, as in huge. And you can tell that it could be, if it's a social media one, it could, in a, in a second, wipe out uh, the Telegram groups as we know them now, as those the main way of interacting, certainly in the West. could be everything moves across onto this new social media platform very, very quickly. And we find that our discourse suddenly upgrades a whole other level, whereby, you know, uh, what I've, I've long complained about is so many great discussions in the governance channels and everywhere else. It's just, it, it gets buried under that, that timeline of comments. And you just can't search that, that previous great content, analytical debates, everything else. And we, we've lost that historical record that we had on the Bitcoin forums. Uh, Satoshi's comments, you know, you can go back and read these amazing debates. And I don't, you know, it's a shame, but I don't think we're ever going to see, be able to see a way of pulling that back out of Telegram and putting that into a readable format for people. Because you can bet in 10 years' time, I think there will be people wanting to reference back to the EOS launch and say, Oh, you know that guy who's now a gazillionaire running a massive corporation? Oh, he was part of the EOS launch. Looking back through his comments, oh, wow, look at this interesting debate he had back then with, you know, somebody else who's also now done, done this and this since. And it, so I, I'm hoping that if it is a social media platform, it's kind of a massive upgrade on both the, the, the content potential of Steam. But realistically, you've got to fancy they are looking at the likes of Facebook with a cryptocurrency embedded into it and trying to say we could do this much better without the censorship, without the privacy issues, and so on and so forth. And, and I'm hopeful we're going to see something to become maybe the first big social media platform launch since Sting. Um, you know, I mean, I, I know there's some other smaller ones that have launched in the mainstream too, but this could be the first big cryptocurrency social media platform. That is my hope as well. My hope as well. And what was your what was your take on the them unstaking their what's your what's your conspiracy theory on them them unstaking their their tokens aside from voting? <laughs> um, well, they did say it was uh, for strategic purposes. So that strategic is is a very broad term, and uh, it doesn't really tell us a lot at all. Um, I, I, I think my, my best guess is simply that they are looking to move it across to another wallet to, to use for voting, if I was to guess, to start participating in the network. I, I don't think it's for anything more than that at this stage, personally. Cool. Why would you... I mean, they, they've already confirmed they're not going to sell it. So if you think about it, they're not going to sell it. Um, logically, they're going to be utilizing the CPU if they need it. Not, not obvious. I mean, maybe it's a stake. On, for the main net to stake ready to use for the social media platform. Yeah, that's, that's so, a possibility. Set aside 10 million. Yeah. That's, Could be that. Combination of voting and setting aside of staking. If there's ever one company that doesn't need to borrow from the rest right now, it's probably block one. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point. If they are launching some sort of just huge marketing campaign with a social media site, they're going to need a lot of CPU and RAM to facilitate, make sure nothing... Uh, you know, people aren't having to, uh, if they're staking on behalf of all the users, possibly. Um, it's an interesting take for sure. Yeah, um, that's just not it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing as much as anybody. It's just, that's, you know, but it, it will be fascinating to see what they've got, got coming. And um, yeah, I think, you know, it, Block One always interests me as a company because they, they do a lot behind closed doors for a, for a transparent blockchain 
they themselves tend to keep, keep the cards close to their chest. But I think part of the reason they're doing that is they're working towards a fairly coordinated master plan um, that they don't want to really reveal too much about until it starts to become... Uh, because I think the reason they don't is that the sorts of companies they're looking to compete with, uh, it would be a disadvantage to reveal their strategy just yet, if that makes sense. So I think whatever they're working on are going to be different components of a wider strategy that will become apparent um, much more clearly as they start to deploy them one by one. That's what I, I think. Well, that's immensely exciting. I can't believe it's finally here. Like uh, within less than a week, I'm getting on an airplane and going to Washington, D.C., and we're all yep. going to get an answer as to what is going on. So um, the wild speculation is fun, but that moment of actually realizing what they have planned is going to be uh, kind of, you know, that's going to be a blast. I can't wait, man. Can't wait. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or, or it'll be something that you'll go, oh, my goodness, is that it? Yeah, I know. You know, uh, if it's that's, just, what, that's what Dan's, Dan seems to be worried about now. He'll be like, when Google, when Telegram, when, <laughs> when Facebook deal? What do you mean? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there was a, he also said no government partnership. So, um, you know, the DC yeah. thing, the DC thing is just uh, seems like maybe more of a, um, just a statement, you know, a statement location as opposed to anything. What, isn't it? I think I've heard that they're, run, they're building or they're, they're relocating Block One's headquarters to DC, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. So I think that's the, the reason for choosing DC as the location. It's, it's going to be their new headquarters in some fashion. So it makes sense. Which, I, you know, which, does, which does make a statement that they're going to work closely with regulators and try to you know, have something that's very mainstream and usable for the U.S. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think you know, if you look at Block One themselves, they... They obviously raised uh, a lot of money in the, at the height of the ICO boom, but they, they didn't set out to do that. They set out to do a raise during um, the ICO boom, really presumably to cover the costs, the huge upfront development costs they put in to build out EOS itself. You know, you had a massive team based out of Blacksburg and other locations building around the clock for the best part of probably about a year. That's not cheap to do that with, with developers of that quality. And so... It's an entirely justifiable one, and if you look at that as a project, it's fully delivered on the on, on the white paper, and, and has continued to be built out and maintained over the last year. So the good news there is that you know that nobody can, can well, I suppose some haters could, but nobody can can, can claim that there are some sort of fraud and didn't deliver on what was promised in the project and the white papers. So I think you're right. I, it, it makes perfect sense to me now that if you're now looking to take EOS IO to the next level, it needs legitimacy, and for that you need to to get buy-in from global stakeholders on a range of levels, government being one as well. And, and it's trying to make them understand that, yeah, they, this, is, this is a platform for everybody to leverage. This isn't meant to be just for the EOS mainnet. It's not meant to be just for, for a small exclusive group. It's open source and anybody can spin one of these chains up and use it for private means, for public, for uh, you know, some sort of in-between models. You can configure it any way you wish relatively easily and and that's i think the message that they gradually have to break down over time and will through usage um use cases and that's going to be interesting because at that point that's when we see lots of chains lots of need for new new block producers coming in and uh, and, and teams that can really maybe out uh, that bit hungry and want to compete and, and provide better better services and we might end up in that world of lots of chains all trying to out compete each other for economic business which is 
super cool because that's kind of, you know, for me, free capitalism work in a way that's just raw and creative and yeah. Oh, I'm feeling excited now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, the biggest idea that's the most commonly overlooked is this idea that like block one is just one company operating within this space. They're like, they could be, they could, they could be not, you know, they're, they're not, there's so much focus on block one. EOSIO is the technology that's been unleashed to the world. EOSIO is this platform that anyone can come build on. There could be a hundred block ones. There could be thousands of block ones someday. Uh, EOSIO is its own separate entity that, that gives this potential for massive amounts of competition, massive amounts of free market creativity, uh, just this huge tool that's been given to the world. And, uh, you know, them going to Washington, D.C. and just openly, like, kind of giving it to the government as well. They're, like, like you said, brashly, <laughs> brashly proving their point. Like, anyone can use this. Even the U.S. government, if you want, can use this. Everyone, here's a new thing. Go out and build stuff with it. Uh, it's, it's a killer big idea, for sure. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about, about it too is that Block One, of course, may not even become the, the largest business on there by any means. Uh, I mean, you can see a, a time conceivably where they managed to attract a very large player in from the technology sector um, because they realized that what is the point of us building an entire new protocol that does the same thing as this? Um, and especially when we can configure this to our needs in any way, shape that we wish. So examples would be, you're, I mean, a great example is looking at something like Kick. So KIP were spending a long time building out the KinNet um, token and, and various things related to that. Actually, in reality, what they could have done is taken an instance of EOS if it had been there for their own network to service their needs and plugged into the wider EOSCI um, system. Now, that's one example. You could see the likes of Microsoft looking to leverage the technology for their own needs as well. Why would you need to be messing around with Hyperledger and its you know, high costs and low performance levels when you can just take EOS IO, fork the code base, make a few amendments and sell it as an ongoing package to commercial companies um, for their own needs in some, some way as private blockchains. I mean, you know, the, the great thing about this is that it could be used in any way by anybody in theory um, and it will all plug in over to this wider collection and network over time as well, which is where I think I start to then at those moments see why people talk about this being the effective new internet um, when you get to that point because you can just put everything onto different chains in that theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every, it, and I love the idea also of every community, every network having their own um, little dynamic, possibly even separate token for for all these different uh, for all these different networks because uh, communities on the community level, there's a lot of dynamics that aren't fully suited by by you know whatever ways we trade right now so it's almost big picture it almost takes us full circle back to like the barter system where everything except with full liquidity you know where everything is just tradable within your community and outside your community and, and, and worldwide and globally i mean it's a um the neo internet is a interesting concept to try to start to wrap our heads around and how value is exchanged peer-to-peer -peer because for so long now, for thousands of years, basically since almost since the invention of, of, of money, we've needed some sort of intermediary to facilitate all these transactions. And all of a sudden, real peer-to-peer -peer transaction with liquidity globally with 
NFTs and everything is, is, is a just kind of a crazy idea. So ESIO is the, is that. I, I suppose the only thing we haven't touched on at all in this whole, whole conversation are DAX as well. So the, the one thing that I think we might see uh, the real rise of over the next couple of years are going to be more and more of these decentralized or autonomous company communities um, building and de developing out in a variety of ways. It's, it's going to be everything from at certain applications will maybe go that route, could be more block producers go that route, could be whole chains that end up getting um, implemented in, with, with more DAC-like governance features in them as well. And, and that's really interesting because I think then again, we could find that it challenges our perceptions on how um, each chain should necessarily behave and how the dynamics could, could work in this. Because we talk about communities and it could be that some of them don't even have a community in the way we know them now as well. So it's going to be, yeah, like everything else, it's going to be super interesting, right? I don't think, I think we, we, if we were to fast forward five years and look back at conversations like this, we'll, we'll kind of smile because we say, oh yeah, well, there's so much ahead of you guys. You had no idea what was coming. And it, mm -hmm. it really does, those moments you think, man, I feel like I'm in 1994 with the, you know, the, the birth of the internet. It has that same feeling. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a exciting times. And, um, this, uh, you know, and we're, we're a week away from even the, uh, a big culminating event, hopefully. So, uh, again, a plug for the Tulip conference, look up the Tulip conference, come hang out with me and, uh, David in San Francisco and a bunch of other block producers. Uh, if you're going to DC, you probably already know about it. And, um, where's the best place for, where's the best place for people to find out about the, uh, checks, um, token auction and Shintai. So the best place to go for information about that is checks, uh, sorry, is Shintai.io. And from there you can find information about, about, um, about the checks white paper, um, the tokenomic model. Um, you'll, you can also access the, the Shintai exchange, uh, the version one that's currently up version two's new UI is about to deploy uh, in the next few days as well. So that's, that's going to be super cool when that's up. And, uh, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, from there, um, anybody who goes through the KYC process as well, welcome to then in theory take part in any of the 18-hour uh, um, uh, releases that take place on, a, on an ongoing basis through to December the 4th. Nice thing is that um, we've tried to build the system out to um, smooth all these price um, spikes you see in other auctions. So people have the option to just go in and average in over, say, 20, 30, uh, 300 rounds or, or whatever it is. And and just get an average price, which I think is always quite a smart way to, to do these things as well. So it's been good seeing um, uh, the, the response so far from, from people has been great. And uh, I'm excited to see how uh, the community responds when we, we start to give a lot more detail on the, uh, the progress, especially on the NFT side of things. Well, uh, I'm a U.S. citizen, so unfortunately it's not a super straightforward process for me. I might just have to wait for checks but i'm excited about the project it's 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 really cool a uh, very very exciting future as well i mean it just we start going down this rabbit hole of how big of an idea it is it's just uh, checks is a really exciting project so can't wait to see what happens um i end this is the eos podcast my eos podcast friends this is actually the eos writer podcast as well we're partnered with the eos writer so if you you've probably seen them bouncing all over the social medias and with a really good uh quality curated 
uh, some of the best information about EOS. So uh, check out the EOS Writer. Check out the EOS Podcast. Check out Hybrid.Games. Scott is a um, not only a, a computer engineer, but also a software engineer. And he's building this really cool uh, idea called Hybrid.Games, like bringing some of your sensory, um, like, into games on the blockchain so uh fun idea so check that out and um david thanks for coming man i appreciate it eos 42 everyone vote for you my pleasure yeah uh, oh, yeah I, I should probably say that as we, we dropped out the producer zone yeah i mean um yeah i i haven't i haven't sort of uh, said something like that since almost the uh, the launch of the network but yeah i mean uh voting is incredibly important so uh, i i'm gr- i think it's great to see the higher level of uh of voter engagement we've got across the network now um, and I would just say that if anybody is a uh, is a holder and isn't currently voting, I I would encourage them to take a look at things like the Rex, pick a really good proxy if they're not sure who to to um, to go for. The likes of uh, Freedom Proxy and Luke Stokes's proxy, uh, amongst the many others that uh, you know have maybe good value sets that, that that are good for them. And I encourage them to find out a bit more. But it, it's just really important on a network like this, one way or the other, to try and have your voice heard. And it's all proportionate to your stake. But that doesn't matter. The important thing is make your voice heard and make it make it uh, heard because every amount makes a difference, and uh, it, it's good for the network's health that we have active voters. So, whatever else, I hope more people do continue to uh, gradually come in. Absolutely. Well, EOS forty two has my vote. If you uh, if you're if you're voting individually, vote for EOS forty two. Um, and that's that's the show, my EOS podcast friends. Thanks for stopping by, and uh, cheers. Good to have you on, David. Thank you. The money is not the prime asset in life. Time is.